then we'll see. All right. All right. Good evening, all. We are dealing with this evening the, the great phenomenon that is of Jewish success throughout uh, Jewish history, uh, world history, I suppose. And the phenomenon of Jewish success is isolated to particular periods. I think you'll find that a large part of what we've been talking about over the series has been in specific periods, whereas perhaps not anti-Semitism, not, which we spoke about last week, but um, definitely the ability of the Jew to integrate into society, which allows them that opportunity for success, is relegated to those few and very far between times in Jewish histories where the Jews had an opportunity to engage in various commercial and uh, other activities that will allow them and afford them the opportunity to be successful. So the vast majority of the Middle Ages, Jews never had opportunities within mainstream society, and therefore there's very little that Jews contributed to society, at least outside the world of rabbinic scholarship. So if you think of the great Jewish scientists, the great Jewish mathematicians, uh, musicians, etc., we're going to see that there's you know, a bit in the ancient world, there's a bit during you know, the Spanish, you know, the few years that we lived in Spain, and then there's going to be from the modern era onwards. And very little in between. So you think of a great Jew that lived in the 1500s um, that really made a major impact on the world. It's really going to be tough to find such a person as, as an individual. And the same thing in, the, in, the, you know, in Europe throughout the 12, you know, up 1200s and the like. But let's start from, um, from what I'd like to do tonight, which is slightly different to what we've done, is to actually just talk about notable characters in history, not so much in, in modern history. I don't think I need to list all the famous Jews that have uh, really made a name for themselves in the last uh, 100, 200 years, but perhaps throughout, you know, where we see this as a phenomenon. And then to go through, rather than just talking about the historical side of it, start talking about some of the rationales and scientific and historical explanations for why are this, is this peculiar people who make in the current uh, world 0.02 of 1% of the world's population, yet receive up to 16, 17% of the Nobel Prizes. So we are disproportionately represented in virtually every area of life, except sport. But uh, although there are some notable uh, sportsmen as well, although, you know, we, 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 we hold those, we hold the Mark Spitzes up in the world, like, hey, Mark Spitzes. Like, we own most of the best teams. Ah, well, th this, this is true. We are, I didn't say we're not involved with sports, I just say we can't play them. So, so it's very few. Okay. So I suppose in, in, in Jewish history, uh, you go first, you go look at someone like Joseph. That is uh, the ultimate stories of rags to riches. A young boy who's rejected by his entire family, sold down to Egypt, works his way up in the household of Potiphar, um, is accused of raping his, uh, his master's uh, wife, and <coughs> finds himself back in jail. He spends 20 years in this sort of limbo state until eventually Pharaoh has the two famous dreams of the cows on the, on the river and of the wheat, the, the wheat sheaves. And, um, and Joseph is all, you know, comes literally out of the dungeon to success and rises his, raises his, rises all the way up to the top of uh, being the Chancellor of Egypt, second in command to Pharaoh himself. And how he's able to, uh, to be able to, not so much manipulate, but manage the process of the upcoming famine um, is really what gives Egypt all its great success. We spoke about last week that this was the beginning of the end from a Jewish point of view because that success brought about the inevitable anti-Semitism that was, uh, was, came in its wake. But that being said, Joseph's ability to, to have this insight in a, in a business sense was something which was unparalleled. I mean, he was the greatest in Egypt. And uh, Egypt, at least at the time, acknowledged all his unbelievable contributions to, uh, the Jewish, uh, to Egypt as a society as a whole. So Joseph's the first time we really see it. And albeit that throughout uh, biblical history, um, we do talk about a handful of noble, uh, notable, wealthy individuals, but there's very little talk about uh, various integration. It's like if you think about where do we see Jews in biblical times um, mixing and becoming successful in the eyes of the, of the non-Jews. So we see, Pharaoh, we see Moses. Moses becomes very great in the eyes of Pharaoh. We see in, the, in Purim, we will see that Mordechai becomes very great in the eyes of Achashverosh, but not in a contributing manner. You know, they might have been successful in their own rights, and we do see, even through Talmudic times, we do see questions. We see rabbis having conversations with very large, uh, very um, noble 
leaders from different communities, whether it be you know the various Caesars that that uh, that make their way through Rome to various Persian and Babylonian leaders. But it's hard to see a whether these accounts are even literal, as opposed to, as opposed to just Talmudic law trying to teach stories and ideas. But it doesn't seem that there's any real historical basis for the fact that the Jews made a major contribution to the ancient world beyond the values. There's no question from an educational point of view, but that is something that becomes much more uh, through osmosis than it becomes through various notable characters. So if you think of, you know, the, from the destruction of the temple onwards, when Jews start merging, they start heading uh, east towards Babylonia and start moving into the Andalusian and up into through Spain. Um, a large part of Jewish values and a large idea of Jewish literature starts making its impact, but we don't see anybody doing it. So, you know, put enough uh, people in a certain place, so their culture will definitely have an effect on others, but it's very hard to, to see any particular individuals. Um, the one that we do see, and this comes uh, later, now we're talking around the 1100s, and this is the... Uh, well, Jesus... Well, Jesus we're going to be talking about in a subsequent class, which is going to be on messiahs and pariahs, which uh, we will deal with probably next week. But Jesus as an individual is... Um, I mean, you've got a point. <laughs> like, I can't... Pardon? He was Jewish. He was Jewish. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, yeah. Listen, but I think Jesus as an individual, yeah, it's interesting. It's not so, so, so much the angle I was aiming for, because there will be plenty of leaders that will come out. But the problem with these sort of leaders, and this we'll see with next week. So next week we will do this Messiahs and Pariahs. So we're going to see people like Jesus, and we're also going to see people like Shabtai Tzvi, who no question they were incredibly influential on various... But, but it's hard to see that these people... Oh, so... so um, so it's hard to see that these people made uh, impact on in the way that I'm trying to describe, so to speak. But you've got a point there with Jesus. So left him out. Kept the classical Jews much more than the, the pariah ones. Um, but really until you go down to uh, Maimonides, where we're talking about influential characters. Now Maimonides, albeit that we think, I think most of us think that Maimonides was a great Jewish sage whose uh, success and his notoriety was limited to the realm of uh, Jewish education. But that being said, if you go into the American House of Representatives, it has pictures of different faces of great philosophers throughout history, and Maimonides has his face up there in uh, the, Amer the American, um, not Parliament, but the American Senate. So Maimonides, as an individual, not only was he noted as from, a, from a Jewish point of view, as being a phenomenal philosopher who really was able to somehow combine. Maimonides' great contribution to, to world philosophy was his ability to be able to somehow combine Aristotelian philosophy with theism. So, and, and this is where the big challenge. His great masterwork of philosophy was called The Guide to the Perplexed. And this is what it did. It wasn't, uh, he, from, a, like a, from a rabbinic point of view, his contributions were in his halachic literature and his ability to, con, you know, to take the entire Talmud and to condense it into a few you know, small volumes, relatively speaking. You mean, we're talking, the, I'm just on scale, you're taking this amount of books and you're putting it into this amount and you've been able to capture all of Jewish law in a very small amount of time and very concise wording that really changed the Jewish world. But that wasn't his great contribution to the world. That was his great contribution to the Jewish world. To the world in general was this, this philosophy and how he was able to um, impart it. Now, in, in many ways, that Rambam was much more than a philosopher. And I suppose where he's best known in the non-Jewish world was as a physician. So he was a physician. Rambam, born in Cordova, Spain, eventually moved through, uh, through Morocco and eventually settled in, uh, settled in Egypt and landed up being the chief physician to Saladin. Now, Saladin, if you're familiar with your crusades, and like, you know, you know these, these are talking some of the greatest Muslim leaders of history, and they're, they're people that they were, you know, were, were serving them at the time were people like Maimonides. So this is an individual who was head and shoulders above everyone. What we don't really know about Maimonides, we can intuit as, was he a wealthy man? This is definitely clearly a, an influential man, but very little is written in Jewish history. A large part, I'm actually listening to a, um, a biography of Maimonides at the moment, which is uh, like a 27-hour biography, so it should take me a few runs. But um, 
it talks there's very little most of the history you know about the Rambam doesn't come from the Rambam it has to come from um, Islamic scholars who wrote historical pieces of the day because uh, biography in Islam, old Islamic scholarship was quite profound whereas in the Jewish world there's very little said about it so you have uh, Rambam if we go a few hundred years later now this is really in the golden age of Spain so, so Rambam didn't live in the golden age of Spain Rambam lived a uh, well prior to it and Rambam left Spain because of the inf inf influx of the Omahads. So Muslims throughout the history have always had a, a group of moderate Muslims and have extreme Muslims. And Rambam initially lived under moderate Muslims and the Omahads came in and said that everyone who wasn't a Muslim was, a, was an infidel and had to be converted or murdered. And so that's what caused the Rambam to leave. Later, you know, under Christian Europe, is where, and a Christian Spain is where they, ironically, at least for the early days, is going to be a certain level of prosperity for the Jewish community. And from a rabbinical notable, someone who also had enormous influence is a guy named Rabdon Yitzchak Abarbanel. Rabdon Yitzchak Abarbanel, we're talking now uh, 14 to 1500s, he was a financier of note. And his great contributions eventually ended up being the treasurer to Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand in Spain and was largely responsible for the finances and a number of the wars that they undertook. A large part of the uh, Columbus's voyage was financed by Jews and uh, that whole area, and so they weren't, uh, they were, many of them were converso Jews, but uh, Jews nonetheless. Barbara now was first in, in Spain and then in Portugal. He died a virtual pauper in Padua, Italy, which is one of the sad uh, ironies of Jewish history that uh, we all die the same no matter how successful we are in life. But um, it was somebody who was able to rise, you know, the chain of command to be uh, incredibly influential. Um, it's not until much later that, you know, post uh, the expulsion from Spain, the Inquisition and the like, it's not until the modern era that the one who brings in the Enlightenment, and this is, this, this contribution, albeit that probably know him as a name, but not as much as the enormous amount of influence that this individual had. That up until, so what's the enlightenment? So enlightenment was basically taking the world out of the dark ages where education was, really, was left to the privileged few, predominantly religious leaders, and there was virtual complete illiteracy within the broader world. And the Enlightenment brought an opportunity for the layman to become educated, not only within religious texts, but beyond that. And the ability to start looking to a world beyond dictatorial decrees that have come down from the Pope, who is the representative of God in the world. So the uh, Protestant Revolution that we spoke about last time with Martin Luther, and the various other revolutions that take place within different religions. The, and this is one of the interesting things in the modern era, is that the, the, the Muslim culture never went through such an emancipation. You know, there are, so you get moderate Muslims, but they never had a reform movement that went through it. But the one who was the first real three, free thinker in the world, is, and I see Jeff nodding his head, if anyone other than Jeff, again, I do who are we referring to? So Baruch Spinoza. So this, Baruch Spinoza, if I'm not mistaken, it was about a month ago, they had his, I think it was, it must have been 400 or 104. It was an anniversary for the time that he was put in Khairim. And there were certain rabbis who wanted to withdraw the Khairim. So Spinoza was, uh, there's a, I haven't read any real biographies of Spinoza, but a guy named Irvin Yalom. I don't know if anyone's familiar with Irvin. You read the book? So Irvin Yalom, uh, it's a Spinoza effect, I think it's called. Spinoza. I think it's a Spinoza. It's a very interesting book. Um, just talking a bit on the one hand, the biography of Spinoza, and another guy, a Nazi, who, a Nazi who's fascinated with Spinoza and the whole thing. So, yeah? yeah, two different heroes. Yeah, so anyway, so what Spinoza was, was a, a guy who grew up, his name is Benedict. He was uh, one of the, uh, those who, from a descendant of those families that had left uh, Spain during their exile. And uh, he grew up in a from family. He grew up as a very learned man. He wrote many of his own commentaries on the, on the Torah. But had different ways of looking at the Scripture. That up until that point in time, the Scripture was to be understood pretty much literally. And the idea of esoteric understandings and metaphoric understandings of the Scripture and, and looking to the world beyond that which you've been told by your parents and the idea of being a free thinker was something that he basically lost his life as a result. The Jews were not very receptive to him. He was, if the, if the book is an accurate biography, and to my understanding is largely accurate, is that um, basically the Jews set him up 
we knew that he was uh, espousing these heretical views, many of which you would hear come out of the, the, the you know, come out of the mouth of uh, people like Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. You know, a lot of the stuff that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is not all too dissimilar from that which Baruch Spinoza said. It the difference is he said it four or five hundred years later, so it's a lot easier to get away with it uh, nowadays. No, father, three hundred years, four hundred years later. So, so what he, what happened is you'd have a lot of these these uh, uh, Muranos that had come from Spain and Portugal and had come to Amsterdam where <coughs> where he was based, and they wanted to learn about philosophy and stuff. And he would take them under, and he would start teaching them all these heretical views. And so the the local rabbi put a couple of spies in there, and they you know exposed him for the for the heretic that he was, and they ostracized him from the from the Amsterdam Jewish community. He lived virtually as a hermit. He was a he was a glass grinder. He used to make uh, glasses, um, and uh, he lives his his house is still there, and you can go visit it. And if I'm not mistaken, you can go to the shul in Amsterdam where you can see his name blotted out of the ledger of where he's being. He was um, he was uh, exiled. Well, he was put into excommunicated. Thank you. He was excommunicated. But Baruch Spinoza's contribution to the world of thought, and so much that we have today as a result of the freedom of thought and freedom of Western society, comes as a result of people like Baruch Spinoza. I mean, I, I, get, I taught a course at uh, ACU, Australian Catholic University, on an introduction to Judaism. So I would get in there, and I mean, you can't imagine many Jews are coming to an introduction of Judaism course at ACU. So I get in there, and so I'm saying, okay, who's, you know, so it's clear I've got a handful of Muslims, and I've got a handful of Christians, and the guy says, I'm a Spinozist. So I don't know what a Spinozist is, and I didn't know that such people existed, but um, apparently there are still people out there in the world that are very into uh, Baruch Spinoza. So he was a phenomenal uh, thinker. In the modern era, it's hard, to, it's hard to, to overestimate the contributions of the Jews to modern society in areas of science, in areas of general culture. Um, I was... I was going to put on this movie. I, told, I, think, I found a great documentary, which I think grateful for Purim. It says, when Jews were funny, and it's the history of American comedians, and basically that all, all the good comedians throughout the beginning of the 20th century were all Jewish, and to a large degree still are. You know, many of them are Jewish. Yes, to the point, if anyone studied, anyone study psychology at all? I mean, I kid you not, seven or two, eight out of ten of the names you hear in the world of psychology are Jews. I, like when I was studying it, it was just like, you know, from Freud up until, uh, you know, now it was like of the, let's just say, 50, 60 names of people that we, we learnt about, I could count on one hand how many of them had non-Jewish sounding names. Now the rest of them were just completely, and it goes to the point, it was like, what is it? What is it about the Jewish people that uh, give us an opportunity that we, we, we take with both hands and we just are disproportionately successful in virtually every endeavor that we do. Now, this has, as we mentioned last week, when we use this as the economic theory of anti-Semitism, that that has been one of the problems of anti-Semitism, the success of the Jews has led to anti-Semitism. The question is, is, it, is that the way around, or maybe the other way around, is that the anti-Semitism is what led the Jews to the areas of success. So, what we're going to now do for the, I suppose, the second part of this uh, evening is to actually try to understand how people are trying to make sense of this Jewish success because everyone agrees that it exists. What no one seems to agree in is why does it exist? So I'd be interesting to know theories because I'm sure you've all heard theories and uh, see where we come down to. Desperation. Desperation. For I think desperation drives you to... So, so, every, so every, every well, 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 the challenge comes to that is you say, well, how do other societies react to desperate? So, if you look at other oppressed uh, minorities, what they or even majorities they've been through. So, let's look at the Aboriginal community, or look at North American blacks or Native Americans. Um, how do they resolve? How do they? react to years of oppression and anti-Semitism and desperation. And what we see is it's, it's not uh, ubiquitous through the world that the person who's put under pressure and suffering automatically, automatically triumphs. It is something that is uh, quite unique, if, if that is to be the reason. And you'd have to say, well, if 
it is at least one of the catalysts to do success. There must be something else. It's like you can water a lot of different seeds, but if the seed doesn't have what's in it to grow, it ain't going to grow. So it could be that the water might help, but uh, the water itself is not sufficient. I was going to say uh, education. Okay. You were always the people of the book, and even right through the dark ages, never mind before this enlightenment, this Spinoza and the like, uh, we still believed as a people in education, even if it was based in scriptures and Torah, mm. whereas Christianity was just, as you said, it was they, they, they really kept um, people in the dark following decrees. I think mm. our ancestors wanted to educate their children, even mm. if it was just in Torah or whatever. Mm. So there's definitely an element that will come out through the research, although in and of itself, and this is what you'll see, is that there is no answer to this. It is such a murky discussion, and there's so many theories behind it that invariably the truth is somewhere in between all of these theories rather than it being one in particular. Um, so let, let's basically nut it down into two broad areas of theories, which is, is it nature or is it nurture? Is the Jewish success as a result of uh, something endemic within our character, our values, our communities, our, our, our religion that somehow has brought it about? Or has it actually got nothing to do with it? It has to do with our genes. And um, so there's a... I've got a handful of articles um, which I printed and a number that I have not and a number of very interesting bits. So there's a guy named Richard Lynn and... So there's a, he, he gives a talk on YouTube of which a large part of what I'm sharing, there's an article here how to explain how Jewish achievement, the role of intelligence and values. So this particular article, he's English, University of uh, Ulster, if I'm not mistaken. So he, um, I found him online giving a talk at a conference in Turkey about why Jews are so successful. And one thing that he's now, well, Richard Lynn is a geneticist, and his big his big area of study is the relative IQs of uh, different races around the world. And Ashkenazi Jews have the highest IQ by three or four points to any other race in the world. In view of recent genetic research, that's incredible actually because it's been shown that the Ashkenazi Jews actually descended from Neanderthal European women. Well, I assume from Neanderthal European men as well. No. <laughs> they apparently the the gene they looked at the mitochondrial DNA DNA which is transmitted through the female from yeah. through the females. And the females were descended from European women. Yeah. And it goes back as far as Neanderthal times, whereas the male, the Y chromosome, came from the Middle East. Well, I'm going to have to take your word on that particular one. I, I, no one, none of my studies uh, yielded such a, such a phenomenon. Maybe we underestimate the intelligence of the animals. <laughs> Maybe. But, um, but, but and, and, this is, and this is not, this, this is not uh, unique to Richard Lynn. I mean, this is, if you go look at it, it seems to be basically a fact. Now, what's interesting about that is what are the contributions of non-Ashkenazi Jews in the world today, and truth be told, um, the vo relatively speaking, a lot less. If you talk about successful Sephardim, successful Ethiopians, successful uh, Yemenites, success uh, North African Jews, etc., etc., we don't see as much of their contributions. But again, they two, three years, hundred, two, three hundred years behind the eight ball as far as the emancipation goes. That you know, the the Sephardi Jews have not have, no, not had the ability to, you know, enculturate themselves within broader society for the last 300 years. Now, we do, I mean, there are many famous Sephardi Jews that you probably don't know Sephardi. Jerry Seinfeld is Sephardi. Now, there's a lot of these Jews that we just assume are Ashkenazi. There's an enormous Syrian community in, um, in, in, in New York, and uh, a large part of these guys come out of those communities. But as far as the pure IQ goes, it's specifically the Ashkenazi um, IQ. So, so, Richard Lynn... Um, goes into a whole bunch of different explanations to why it is that Ashkenazi have higher IQs. Now, so IQ, uh, you know, based on the genetics behind it, could be viewed as, you know, it's just, well, you know, God just puts in the gene pool and, you know, you know, some people get it and some people don't. But 
we mentioned this last week. We mentioned it in the negative way, but uh, in this case, is that uh, he said that it was based largely on eugenic practices. So eugenics is specifically breeding for a purpose. So Hitler was very behind eugenics, that you get strong Aryan men and strong I mean, I'm sure many of you saw the article that was uh, going around about Hitler yesterday. No? Okay. Go online. You can see it was in the news yesterday about Hitler. But the eugenic practices, which may, basically means Jewish communities were designed in such a way that bred brains. And this is still true within the ultra-Orthodox world. So now, your kids will marry whoever they find, you know, a boy meets girl, whatever the case might be, everyone gets married. But what happens in the ancient world is that the vast majority of marriage practices were, whether we like it or not, were based on the finances available at the time and trying to get the best shidduch for your kid. Now, I know from family that are live in Benebra that the way the model works is follows: Brains marries money. That's how it works. So, so this Rosh Kolel, his son is either going to marry another Rosh Kolel's daughter or a very wealthy man's daughter. And so what's going to happen is that the wealthy Jews are going to marry the smart Jews and now you're going to have smart, wealthy Jews. And what's going to happen is the poor, stupid Jews eventually are going to you know, fall by the wayside. That while you have these eugenic practices that consistently is putting this, this premium on wisdom and wealth, that we eventually, you, this is, these are only people going to survive. And, and he talks a, a bit a bit more about it, is that, you know, that the smarter people, not only were they smarter in the sense that they were more book smart, but the smarter Jew was able to see what was coming around the corner. So, you know, who got out of Germany? So, Polish Jews and those, the Jews in Eastern Europe, so many of them, you know, didn't have the opportunity to flee before the, before the time was too late. But who got out of Germany? So, let's just look at you had X amounts of hundreds of thousands of German Jews. Everyone saw the same information. Hitler was coming. Hitler said he's going to kill the Jews. Do we believe him? Take him for word. Do we not? So who got out and who stayed? So most of us say the ones who got out were whatever, were scared or whatever. Those who stayed believed that it would never happen. So one of the theories here, this is not me saying, this is Richard Lynn saying, is that the smart Jews saw the writing on the wall. They saw when the pogroms were coming. They predicted what was going to happen. And they got out. And the Jews who didn't were the ones that were killed. So you have this like culling program that happens through thousands of years where the Jews are, are, are basically creating this, this, this genetic um, purification that those that are coming through are going to have an IQ that is just much higher than everyone else because all those with lower IQs are being weeded out. It is, it's Darwinian theory at its greatest. The smartest will survive rather than the strongest. So that's uh, first one. Okay. So that's one. The second one, and this one we talked about a lot last week, is that when it came to uh, economic opportunities for the Jews, especially those Jews, those Ashkenazi Jews, so they were denied agriculture, they were denied um, all forms of um, handicraft and like, and they were relegated into the areas that the only thing, we spoke about this using Mark Twain last week, that the only thing that was not going to uh, wither away were their brains. So if, if the only way you can make a living is through maths and, and money lending and taxation and the like, so who's going to survive in such a society? The person who can do it. So you have these... Now, the Jewish bankers, we don't need to go too far, but Nathan Rothschild, now this is one of the most famous stories used by Jews and anti-Semites alike, to talk about the great brains of the Rothschilds. So Jews, and we'll talk a little bit about this in the, the more nurture section, have always had social capital. And that is the topic of the second article. But social capital is that a Jew goes anywhere and he's networked. doesn't matter how. And that network makes a big difference. And that network made enormous difference in the Jewish trade throughout the Middle Ages and, and beyond. Because we could lead, because I've got a cousin in this place and that place, and so I can sell to you on credit. Now, in the non-Jewish world, they, don't, they didn't have credit because they didn't have trust because they didn't have communities like the Jewish community had. So, so the Rothschilds set up branches all over Europe and a different Rothschild all over the place was, uh, was running the shop. And because they had the trust between all the brothers, there was this enormous ability to, to do trade in ways that no one else could. So the story goes for the Battle of Waterloo 
that the British stock market was desperately waiting results of whether you know, Napoleon had been defeated or had triumphed at Waterloo. Understanding that you know, a win for Napoleon would do a terrible um, collapse on the London stock market and a victory in Waterloo would have the opposite effect. So Nathan Rothschild was, um, you know, people knew how network he was, and had received word by carrier pigeon from his uh, brother of what the result of the battle had been. He did, but no one else did. So Nathan walks into the stock exchange, and he goes, sell. And, ev and everyone sees what Nathan Rothschild sell. We lost the war. We lost the battle. Everybody sells. He waits for everybody to sell. He buys up all the shares. And, and that's uh, the... It's, uh, Richard Lynn quotes this. This is not, uh, you know, Jewish Bobomasis. This is, uh, you know, that's a story that, you know, you, you can't help but be impressed and disgusted at the same time. And it uh, doesn't necessarily give the Jewish people a great name. But that money smarts, that ability, it's very interesting. That in one of these other books, it talks about trying to figure out whether it's Jewish values has been the real uh, core behind um, Jewish success. So it goes through Jewish values. Now this is of Jewish values, three most important Jewish values. So the, the deviation, so uh, honesty... Compared to Protestants, Catholics, and non-denominational, we have the lowest level of honesty as one of our top three values, which I found, I, 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 was, I was quite astounded by that. Says, so these are the top three. So Jews have 58.8, Protestants 67.6, Catholics 63.6. We're the same as the non-denominationals in, in honesty. Most important value, most important value, we are the lowest. 26.3% as opposed to Protestants 37.8, Catholics 33.8. This is this this is different. This is this guy Richard Lynn. So this is now these are being said. They've got a whole sample set and the like and how they did the testing and the like. This is these are scientific journal articles. These are not well, yeah. These are not. Uh, this is not Krebs going out and doing a survey. You know, asking this. These were properly research things. I'll be honest. Listening to Richard Lynn. And, and watching on stage, I was trying to, he didn't say anything anti-Semitic, but if you told me that this was an anti-Semitic conference and he was talking about the fact that why are Jews so smart, I could believe it. But it definitely wasn't an anti-Semitic talk. But you just sit there and you're just like, you know, you have the wrong person in this audience. It would sound very anti-Semitic. But at the end of the day, he was just... Now, the last um, area within um, genetics, which come in, he explains this, and Richard Lynn speaks about this um, as... Interesting, uh, but not yet proven, is, well, what else do we know about Ashkenazi Jews? And he says, we've got genetic diseases, left, right, and center. Let's be honest, there's been so much inbreeding within the Jewish Ashkenazi community that it has led to uh, various diseases that we know so well. So this is Gaucher's disease. So it says, Gaucher's disease, which is more prevalent within the Ashkenazi community than any other community, apparently has an upside. And that has some influence on the brain materials and the like and, and, has, and, and has been argued to contribute to a higher IQ. Doctor, I'm not going to argue this. I'm just going to tell you that that's what he said. Uh, I'm just, maybe if you're a carrier, I don't know. But uh, I have no idea. So, I don't know. But, um, okay. So, okay, so those are the, the genetic. Now, a large part of the, the eugenic practices and those genetic practices are not necessarily mutually exclusive for the nurture arguments towards Jewish success because at the end of the day, if you're going to say that uh, by raising children, you know, in a certain way, um, and, and then it's always automatically going to lead down the genetic path or vice versa. The, I'm not so sure these are mutually exclusive. So when it goes down to the nurture, the nurture, there are those that want to suggest that, truth be told, is there's no difference. That where Jewish success is based on human capital. And human capital is give a guy education, put him in an environment for success, and you'll be successful. So why are Jews successful? And why are 
you know, uh, other cultures and races have not been as successful is because Jews have just invested a lot more in education and Jews have put it as a value and the like. But it's not that there's anything intrinsically superior to the Jew. The Jew is not built for success. The Jew is driven for success. I, I can tell you from, from someone who was publicly school educated until the end of year 10 and then went to King David for year 11 and 12, there's no question the different environment, what it did to my education. I hadn't changed at all, but somehow moving me from a school that I was literally a very average achiever to a school that I became a high achiever literally overnight. It, it, was, it was unbelievable. I went from just getting 60s to getting 85s. And I cannot, uh, it, the, the teachers were no better at King David than they were at Wendywood. But the environment was completely different. The idea of educating towards success, that there, there's this, there's one other thing, it's like, I, when I was, my first year at university, I studied a Bachelor of Science. I had great ambition to, to go into the medical industry because of my matric, I didn't, I wasn't accepted over here. So I had to do a Bachelor of Science first and then transfer out. So the Jews that were doing a Bachelor of Science, all of them, and there weren't many of us, were all doing it so that we could go to physio or go do medicine or whatever, everybody else. The non-Jews that were doing a Bachelor of Science all had ambitions of, of Mahevra, not to generalize them, but in Mahevra. So what are you hoping? I want to be a school teacher. I want to, you know, go, maybe I'll go work in a lab somewhere. Maybe I'll go... The, the, the idea of striving for success that... For the, for the rest of my class, it was, you know, 51, you study too hard, 49, a waste of time. Now, that, that was the logic that went throughout university. Now, I don't think I was unique, but for me, I wanted to do well. I don't want to scrape through university. I wanted to succeed in university. Now, where does that mindset come from that somehow we have to be successful, that there, there's something valuable in success? Don't just do, do well. You know, if you've got to do it, do it properly. That is, we, we, I think we take for granted within the Jewish community that that is, a, that is a value that we hold so dear. Not that we, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. If my kid's going to be playing soccer, I want him to do his best at soccer. He doesn't have to be the best player, but he has to give it all. You know, the idea that somehow not giving 100% is okay. In Judaism, in the Jewish community, I don't think it exists. We always have to give 100%. And so if you're going to give, if that motive and that the rationale is always you've got to give 100%, then invariably you're going to create a culture that is, is driven for success because success is a value. And we do see this within other cultures on different levels. We see this within many of the Asian cultures, uh, the Koreans, uh, the Chinese to a certain degree, the Japanese, that, that there's, a, there's a concept of being successful. You meet an Aussie, it's, it's a different value system. The idea of just, I just want to have a little house and just live in the country and you know, just have a nine-to-five and, you know, just as long as I can have a, you know, if I've got an extra bit of money, I'll go buy a slab of beer. And it's just, it, if you meet a Jew like that, you're just like, what's wrong with you? It's like, why have you got so low ambition? Jews want to be the best. And being the best does not mean wealthy, just so we can be clear. That being the best means whatever I'm doing, I want to be the best at. So whether, if I'm a scientist, I want to be the scientist that invents or discovers or whatever's. Whether I make money from that or not is another question. But the success that we see throughout Jewish history has been very much that. Okay. The success is more than just that's average success. These are guys winning Nobel Prizes. You don't just do that by being driven hard. You have to have something else there that's natural. It's the same as being a great sportsman. You have to be driven hard. But you have to have that natural... So, so, so we don't have that. <laughs> that. No, no, but it pushes you to that level. Correct. But so, so this doesn't account for genius. I think that's... Yeah, yeah. it doesn't account for genius. That's why, that's why so many of these ideas are, you know, overlapping. So as we, with the first analogy, you know, you can pour water on the seed, but there's nothing, there's nothing in the seed that ain't going to grow. So, but what's the water? So the water over here we're saying is that, you know, there's something within the work ethic of the Jew that is... Now, what is the nature of the work ethic? So Keith, Keith wanted to talk about education. Now, there's definitely what to say that Jewish education, and there's this book um, called The Chosen People, written by a couple of kids, 
but it is an academic work talking about that the Jewish education that existed from the year 400 to 1600 is really was the engine that drove the Jewish machine that developed from that point onwards. That Jewish literacy was always higher than literacy in the broader non-Jewish world. So upwards of 70% within the Jewish world, even within women. Although formalized women's education never really came into the Jewish community until the early 1900s. It was by a woman named Sarah Schneerer um, in, in Krakow. But nevertheless, Jewish education. And one of the things which I think we don't necessarily appreciate enough is the hero within the Jewish world was never the warrior. The hero within the Jewish world was always the scholar. So we look at the greatest of the great wasn't Hercules, it wasn't, uh, it was Moses. And Moses got no, you know, title other than Moshe Rabbeinu, he was our teacher. And we look to the great, even, even the great warrior Samson is a very marginalized character within Tanakh. The only people who look to Samson as a great leader or as a great character are non-Frum people. Within the Jewish world, within the Frum world, Samson is a very much a Balan character. Somebody who's really uh, not recognized for his great piety and not somebody who wants to be emulated. And that's why you don't see many Samsons running around. Because it's not the name. You see many, even King David. King David is not thought, he may have slew Goliath. But that wasn't what made David, David. It was his writing the book of Psalms. It was his ability to connect to Hashem. It was a whole different mindset behind seeing value in wisdom. And it's something till this very day that the, the, the pious Jews, the pious leaders, we just don't have warriors. It's not so. Now, in the modern era, this is shifting somewhat, especially within the secular world, where in Israel, um, this is a big challenge when in, the, in, the, in the modern Orthodox world. It was always a big challenge when the boys came back from the army. So imagine, you know, when those of you were in the army, I don't know if you really had army stories to tell when you came back from the army, but um, in Israel, you know, the guys would come on the weekend, and they just they spent the whole week at the base, and they come in, and what do they talk about at the Shabbos table? Do they talk about the parasha, or do they talk about the army? And it was a very interesting, you know, dilemma happening in that from world where our values say that we should be talking about Rashi and the Rambam, not talking about, uh, you know, the ambush. And so it is, a, it is shifting somewhat. But there's no question that uh, education and the amount of education, there's uh, one of the statistics on this other one, just talks about how much, um, just this, this is just Jews' relative educational attainment from 1945 to 2002. This is Jewish education and economic success in the United States, a search for explanations, of which they have none. I mean, they, they, they come up with the social capital, which is one of the... But, in uh, so the 1970s, the average Jew has two and a half years higher, more education than a non-Jew. Um, in two in the 1980, it's gone to 2.6 years. Jews are 60 percent. 60 percent of Jews are college graduates, which only 22 percent of Catholics are college graduates. Um, and and it just it, study after study. And this is a, this is a sample of 20 odd studies. Um, it talks about the edu the the national income the. Occupational Jews have 11.4 points higher than non-Jews in relative occupational achievement. It's just it's it's, it's unfathomable for the fact that consistently this is uh, the education and the success that comes with that education go hand in hand. Couldn't it be traced right back to said in Egypt, we were slaves. We craved freedom and we craved freedom of thought and that kind of thing. But once we were emancipated, unlike other nations that have been emancipated, something significant happened straight after that, and that Sinai happened, and, and we became a nation, and people it became very competitive with one another as yeah. well. But also, were able to identify within that nation, and you know, it was not fragmented like like other nations. We had something that that held held us together and gave us strength. That created a mental strength as well. Rabbi Sachs talks about the, the, the great uh, revelation of leaving Egypt and how so many, you know, the emancipated becomes the enslaver. And that was one of the unique things within the Jewish community. It wasn't the freedom from, but it was the freedom to. So 
Um, there's a great TED talker, the name of the speaker escapes me, but he talks about uh, slavery in the, in the modern world. And he talks about the great um, failed botched emancipation of 1856. And that being uh, Abraham Lincoln. He says, why was it botched? It's because you can't just go and free a people. So the same as taking a wild animal and just letting him into the wild. You have to train people for freedom. And that was the brilliance of the Exodus. The Exodus wasn't a freedom from. It was a freedom to. No way, you see, despite what all of you may think, at no point does Moses ever go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. At no point does he ever say that. He goes and says, Pharaoh... Let my people go serve Hashem in the wilderness for three days. And then at some points he says, let my people go and serve Hashem in the wilderness. But he never says, let my people go. Let my people go is basically open up the prisons. And that is not the goal. If, if you read any, uh, look at this year. Every single year I write the same message for Pesach. And that is, Pesach was not a freedom from, it was a freedom to. Not that we're going to be, I think it's in the Haggadah, you'll probably see I've written it in there as well, that not freedom from slavery, it was freedom to be who we can be and to that. And that's why it's straight from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai, now we've got the framework within which to work and head in a particular direction. So, yes, and, but one of the things that we have to appreciate is that the modern Jew, by and large, is so bereft of Jewish values, at least uh, on, on a superficial level, Deep within their core that's been ingrained within them for the last three and a half thousand years, this concept of wanting success and, and, and so on and so forth, I think they are in there. Those sorts of values are there. But if you ask an average Jew, you know, the value of education, does that come from learning Torah? So he says, oh, what does he mean learning Torah? The guy doesn't know an Aleph bait. You're going to tell me that the education comes from Talmud Torah? That because my Alter Zayda used to learn in the Chayda, that's why I'm sending my kid to university. But that's been substituted. Um. No, but I'm saying is that, but if, you, if I were to go today, why, do you, why is it so important for your kids to go to university and to get a high education? You'd say, because it is. It's very important. It's, it's, it's obvious it's important. I want, my kid to be, I want my kid to be successful. I want my kid to be everything he can be. I want him to have opportunities. So what's the root of that, that you want them? So yes, that probably does go back to Mount Sinai, but it's been so distilled through time that you don't know why you want it. That, 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 that Judaism demands a success. Judaism demands perfection and working towards it. Not that it can be achieved, but the unattainable goal of becoming as perfect as we can be in everything. The idea of being as good, best as you can be is, a, is definitely a Jewish value. But if I ask you, where does it say that in the Torah? Oh, it says in the Torah, I don't know. This is just what my mother told me. If I came home with anything less than a B, my mother said she would jump off the building. You know, it's like it's a, that it would come down to. So I'm saying is that we don't know why we are driven this way. We're just trying to figure out how did it start. Do it for enough time. Not because we were not allowed to proceed in the so many directions at one stage. Well, that's one of the arguments that uh, because we were relegated to areas of finance and the like, but it doesn't do it. It's not sufficient. And we will talk a little bit about anti-Semitism. We go a little bit further, but it's it's very hard to argue that. Any one reason would give it to you. know, I'd love to say the Torah, the Torah. Well, that's why we're so successful. And we'll come to that. You know, I'm doing time wise. Oh, I'm running out of time. Okay, let me just carry on for a few more minutes, and then we'll go to the question. Um, one cannot minimize the okay. So there's Jewish values and and so forth, but anti-Semitism and its contribution to Jewish success. So why? So we've spoken about the fact that because anti-Semitism. Um, you know, cornered us into certain areas and professions which caused us to hone. We spoke last week, we brought that Malcolm Gladwell article where he talked about the fact that Jewish lawyers were only allowed to operate in certain areas of the law, which as times turned, it became the most important that dealing with mergers, acquisitions and hostile takeovers that Jews all of a sudden skyrocket to the top of the legal industry because no one else had wanted to do that beforehand. And we see that happen time and time again. But one of the things which I think is quite, and this, was, this is a theory I have, which I think works in many ways, um, which is when, when you are scared for your life, fear of rejection is not so frightening. In order to, to be successful in any endeavor necessitates that you fail. 
You know, it's just how many times are you able to accept your failure and move on until your next success. The, the, the inability to deal with failure is a guarantee to not be able to succeed in anything. So it's not, it's not a mitzvah to succeed, but it's a mitzvah to accept the success. Shiva Yiputzad, if it comes, what King Solomon says, the righteous man falls seven times and gets up. But the ability to be able to face somebody and not fear the rejection and not be put down by that. Now, this is where uh, Israel's startup nation is, is, is so much the case, is that Israelis don't say, no, can't be done, can't be done. Don't tell me it can't be done, I'll do it. And you're, you're telling me, uh, look at, look at Tamar's business. Tamar was rejected from 36, she, she presented to 36 people. And they all told her, from woman, Rebbitson, you're not going to get a dime from anyone. Okay, so, please God, you know, they'll all be wrong. But at the end of the day is that the ability to accept rejection and to move on despite it. So, what gives an, a, a person the ability to, to accept and not fear being rejected is if, well, look where I've been, where I've come from. I have a history that we Jews, no matter how comfortable you are in Australia, we all have a little bit of anxiety in the back of our mind that there's another pogrom around the corner. And that, is, that has happened to every one of us. If on some unexpected occasion someone said to you, are you Jewish? And your heart skipped a beat for a second, then you, you have that fear. You have that fear built within you that there's a pogrom coming around. It's not rational. It's not logical. It's not really going to happen. But I, when I was at university, um, I didn't tell anyone I was Jewish because I'm not going to walk in and say, hi, I'm Gerd, I'm Jewish. So I was the only you know, Jew in my course. And um, I didn't wear a kippah. I wasn't from at the time. But I had a ruler that had um, Hebrew writing on it. And this was about four or five months into university. And one of my friends says, oh, what language is that? So he said, it's Hebrew. He says, are you Jewish? And, and it, it was like spotlight on me, like, oh, my God, I've been discovered. And it was the most ridiculous experience. But if you've got that, and you've got that, so, well, I'm, you know, if I'm scared of the next pogrom, I'm scared of this guy telling me my idea is a stupid idea. So that's my two cents on this uh, particular topic. Uh, and uh, the, last, the last reason, and that's one that this large article goes into, is this concept of social capital. just want to say that concept of social capital. Any time someone comes into a town, he's networked. And we can't... Now, social capital cannot explain it because many people are success to, successful despite not having that social capital. But if you're going to put it all together, is that you put all these reasons together and they all have an element of truth. That you put the same people with a certain value system that has kept them insular, that has marginalized them around the world, that has had them a culture of education, a culture of success, limited to various areas of industry, honing those skills over generations, and finally, at the end of uh, 1,600 years of Christian anti-Semitism and 3,500 years of Jewish education and Jewish values instillment, you open up the floodgates of the Jews into the broader world, and you've now unleashed this, uh, this, this demon, so to speak. And that was, uh, that was how Mark Twain talked about the state of Israel, which you spoke about last week. You know, put all those brains in one place and it's not going to be good for the rest of the world and Israel will in time just take over everything. That was Mark Twain's perspective. Um, but my last uh, point which I, I'd like to make is just, so why did Hashem make it like that? You know, what is the purpose of uh, Jews being on the top of all these industries? So we're supposed to be a light onto the nation onto the nations but lots onto the nations doesn't mean go make lots of money and discover lots of things it's really supposed to be trying to educate people towards a life of, of Kedusha a life of holiness to bring people closer to Hashem and to try you know inspire people to live a more moral uh, existence so it says this in the Pashat Vait Hanan this is coming so Moses says to us, Behold, I've taught you all the laws and statutes that I've commanded, that Hashem our God has commanded you, that you should do them, that you should come and do them in the, in the land. You should keep them, because that is your wisdom and your understanding in the eyes of the nations. When they see all your statutes and laws, they will say, what a wise and discerning nation these Jewish people are. 
Hashem has given us um, unbelievable opportunity to to make a big difference in the world. How we choose to use those opportunities, it, it is Hashem has given us electricity to light up the world. But if we choose to use it to light up the world, it's really being put into our hands. But the power is very much there. Um, I recall... Um, we all club a bit of nachas when you see a successful Jew, right? You know, oh, you know, he's Jewish, whatever the case might be. So in the Frum community, they do the same thing, yeah? And you say, oh, he's Frum, you know, the guy's Frum. So I had an argument with another rabbi in Sydney about the concept of a Kiddush Hashem. So this is a Kiddush Hashem, a person who does something and everyone looks and says, wow, it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing. So we're talking about a professional basketballer who wears a kippah. And he said, that's a great Kiddush Hashem. And I said, I didn't believe it was. So, so, so why is it interesting? Because look, he's from and he's been incredibly successful in an area where from people are not usually successful. And I said, and that's why I believe it's not a Kirsh Hashem. Because you're saying that his from kite is his handicap and he's been able to overcome his handicap. If you're going to say that, look, he's successful and he's Jewish, meaning being Jewish should be the reason that he's not successful. And he was able to overcome the odds of being Jewish to achieve so much in the world. That's not a Kiddush Hashem. That's the opposite. Kiddush Hashem is you know why this guy is successful. Because he's Jewish. Because he's got a value system. And that comes from Hashem. And that is what's given this guy, girl, whoever, the ability to succeed in the world. It is their Jewishness that allows them to achieve this thing. And that's what it says here in Pasha Bet Khanan. So if he chooses to do that, if he's a guy who's come and says, ah, I'm very successful and I happen to be Jewish, or I'm, happy to be, I'm successful despite the fact that I'm Jewish. So it misses the whole point. But the person who's able to look at it and say is that it is that heritage that I've been given that affords me the ability and the opportunity to become successful. So that's the Kiddush Hashem. Yeah, that's why. Hashem. Had a question? Cool. There's a very nice thought that actually brings some of that together. The definition of innovation very, very strong couple to change. If you can master change, think of different ways to accomplish the same things, or better ways to accomplish the same thing, that gives you your innovation, your startup nation, new ways. Hmm. Because Jews have never had the luxury to draw down on these age-old dynasties. Hmm. We've been moved from place to place, we've been expelled and forcibly shifted and so on. We have become masters of change. You always got to think about how do I accomplish that goal in a changed environment? I think that's more um, descriptive rather than prescriptive, meaning that, that you're right, we've had to do that and we've succeeded despite that, but that doesn't explain why. Many cultures around the world have been shifted from left to right and they've not had opportunities, but they haven't been able to succeed in the same way as the Jews have. Can I put it down? No, no, I'm please. Pl I'd be pleased to be shut down. Okay. Is to say, the way, I used to look at the world as, as a picture, and now I see it as a movie. Mm -hmm. And I think that we said that the Jews haven't shone throughout history, and I think this is just uh, this is our time to shine. So if please God, in centuries to come, we should continue to shine. But it's just as I hear the whole story, this seems to be uh, this is our time to shine. Well, I wouldn't say this is our time to shine, but this is definitely a time that there have been other times, but this is a time. Now, will this time continue indefinitely? There's no reason to say that it will. But when the Jew is given the opportunity, he takes it. Um, not everybody is given the opportunity. It, it's, it, there's something, um, Tuck, in the same book that I quoted last week, and Malcolm Gladwell on Outliers, he talks about something called a cultural heritage, which is that... Um, our history dictates a certain aspect of behavior. So he talks about it, if anyone's read Outliers, he talks about Korean pilots. He talks about um, Korean airlines have had the worst record for uh, human error plane crashes. And largely the reason that it is attributed to is the inability to challenge authority. That there's a very clear cultural hierarchy there and that if the person who's first in charge makes a decision, the person who's second in command cannot challenge it. He can try through innuendo and nuance, but he can't directly say, I think you're wrong. 
and that was the cultural heritage, and that's why these players, they say when they check the black boxes of these crash players, that the second in command knew that something was wrong, but could never challenge the, the, the captain. So that's what, he, that's what Malcolm Gladwell talks about. So the Jewish cultural heritage, I believe, amongst others, is the, the ability to never take on the vic victim sta status. That could there be... Now, we definitely milked the Holocaust. And I, I, I mean, when I say milked the Holocaust, and I, I just maybe I should have not said that, but, but the idea being that we have used the Holocaust as a great platform for the State of Israel and the like. But as a culture, we never allowed the Holocaust to victimize us. We never said, well, our cultural centers and our family statuses and our, our, whole, our whole community structure will never be able to get back together because of the Holocaust. We've been oppressed in such a way that's never happened before. That's it. We, we're done. And now for the rest of our civilization, we will never be able, we're going to have to live off the, the gifts and the, the nations of society and, um, and various uh, grants from the government. That, that the Jew has never been that way. He might say, oh, what the Nazis did, what the Nazis did. But, you know, this is Harry Trugobov, not Harry Trugobov, Frank Lowy, this is Frank Lowy saying, the Nazis, the Nazis, the Nazis. But look what he did. You know, this is, and this is the story of the Jew. I mean, how many Jews came out of the camps and went and built themselves up? They never said, oh, woe is to me. And I believe that is a cultural heritage of the Jewish people. That was um, there's uh, Emil Fackenheim. That was his things. That uh, that was his argument why we should be opposed to intermarriage. Is that it is a posthumous victory for Hitler if we if we intermarry. Uh, I've never seen it work as an argument, but uh, that's his. Yeah. All right, everybody. I oh, thank you very much. Hope you have a pleasant evening.